Great stuff. Well, I'm not sure how privileged you are to have me here because I keep messing up. And I have to start this morning by admitting that that has happened again in a different way this time. Uh, I had this all prepared last night. It was great. Ran through it three times before I went to bed. Thought, I've got this one. Got up in the morning. Everything was ready, right to go. And uh, um, I thought, uh, I'll just plug in the computer for another 20 minutes, give it a bit more power. Then I won't need to plug it in down this end, which is always difficult. So, And uh, did everything right. And last minute when I was leaving... Uh, and he said, oh, can you just get the, the tube going so I can watch the service at Belmont? Oh, right, I've got to go to Great Park, okay. So I did that and then shot off in the car and somewhere around Newton Abbott, this thought came to my mind, something is wrong here. Couldn't work out what it was until I got to, 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 to the hill out there, parked the car and looked in the bag and found I'd left laptop at home. Great stuff. Uh, it's all right, I had the PowerPoint on a, a little stick, but that means it changes all fonts. And Richard has done a superb job in five minutes before the service to try to make it recognisable in English. So you got it, but it's not going to look that great. I'm sorry about that. Anyway, that is just to explain the pictures that you'll see behind. Let's just read some verses uh, this morning, shall we, from Matthew chapter 15. And uh, this is breaking into a story at a point where Jesus has just started to say some things that the Pharisees who've come to listen to him don't like too much. And uh, in Matthew 15, verse 10, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, oh, well, we'll start a little bit uh, further back. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament in, 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 in verse 8. Uh, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And he starts applying this to some of the religious teachers around. Then, it says, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up to the roots. And they're looking at one another thinking, They're not going to like this one either. (laughs) Leave them, they are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, they will fall into a, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. <laughs> are you still so dull, Jesus asked them. Don't you see whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Might make him pass on COVID, but it doesn't make him unclean. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and asked him, Send her away! She keeps crying out after us! He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me! She said. He replied, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said. But even the dogs and the cr- eat the crumbs that fall from the their master's table. And Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your daughter is healed. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. 
The people were amazed when they saw the, the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. And then Jesus does another miracle, a miracle he'd done just a little while before. He'd fed 5,000 people. This time it's only 4,000, <laughs> but it's still a miracle, isn't it? And uh, that's all I think we need to read to set the, 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 the backdrop of the, the story that we're looking at. So we're talking today about Jesus goes abroad for a change. Did Jesus ever go abroad? Well, not really, not very far. Most of his ministry was carried out in that very small country of Israel. And when you read that old William Blake poem, and did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? Oh, you can say, well, no, it's a legend, nice legend. But nope, he never came to, to, to England. Certainly not Glastonbury. Certainly not when there was a festival on anyway. <laughs> and did, did Jesus ever go outside the country? Well, yes, he did. Only a short distance. And this story that we've just looked at now is one of those occasions. And it's an interesting, a curious one. Because he goes a hundred miles on foot to get to Tyre and Sidon, where the Canaanite woman is. That's the only thing that we know that he did there. He did other things as well. He preached, he told people about the kingdom of God and so on. But this is the only miracle that we know about, that he actually did. He walked a hundred miles and made his disciples walk a hundred miles as well, just to do something for that woman. And uh, it seemed in the story that he didn't really want to help her. He had to be talked into it. So what's going on here? Well, this is what we've got to look at this morning. Where did Jesus actually go outside the land of Israel? And what did that actually mean? Now, is this going to work for us or not? Oh, don't tell me that. That's, that could be the next disaster. Oh, I'm sorry, Richard. Could you just click it on for me? And we'll see if this is going to work. That's great. Uh, this is just last week. You remember last week? Yep, if you have the next one, I'm sorry. This is not going to work. I think I'm just going to have to ask you to do it. Why did Jesus send the 70 out, was what we were talking about last week. He sent 70 people out to go to the towns and villages in Jerusalem, in Israel, throughout Judea. And we came up with three reasons last week, if you remember, why Jesus did that. The first one is, and if you click again, thank you, because his mission was to all the nations of the world, not just the Jewish people. He wanted to make it clear that he wasn't just interested in Jews, he was interested in the whole world. And that too casts light on the story we've read this morning, doesn't it? The second reason was because there were three things that they needed to do. And we talked about what those three things were last week, and uh, uh, here they are. And there was a third reason as well. And this was, a, this was an important one too, because they needed to learn how much they could trust him. And we talked about this, and then, next slide please, uh, we talked about who they were. The people that Jesus sent out, and the kind of people that Jesus sent out in his name were unlikely ones because, first of all, they were people whose names not recorded. We don't even know who they were. The first group of 70 missionaries that Jesus sent out, we have no idea who they were. They did their job, and they went down in history, but not personally. Second, they were people who didn't know very much. They hadn't been taught much by Jesus. When the crucifixion came along, they were as dumbfounded as anybody. They didn't know what was actually going on. And third, they were people who didn't expect very much. Because they came back to Jesus and said, Wow, Jesus, it's amazing. The demons are subject to us in your name. It's incredible. And this is incredible. The most incredible thing is that your names are in heaven. And once that's happened, if I send you out, then you can expect incredible things to happen. So that was what we talked about last week. And this week... I want to move on from there. 
we ended by quoting uh, St. Teresa last week, if you remember, about the fact that we are part of God's plan for what God's doing to other people throughout the world, bringing in the kingdom. And St. Teresa said way back in the 16th, 17th century, Christ has no body now but yours. His only plan is to use ordinary people, people without many skills and many abilities here on earth, to bring about his kingdom. And so we're responsible for that. But let's have a look this week at what Jesus actually did, not just in the land of Israel. If you want to follow what this whole story is about, the shape of Jesus' career, then one of the best places you can go to is a website which is uh, understandchristianity.com because they've got timelines of the life of Jesus. Now, it's got to be said that we cannot put together a blow-by-blow account of when everything happened in Jesus' life. First he did this, then he did that, then he did that, then he did that, because we can't do that. The Gospels tend to record things in a slightly different order. And they've got a reason for doing that. They don't believe in chronological order in the same way that we tell stories nowadays. They group stories together in clumps to make a separate point. So sometimes in Mark, the stories go first A, then B, then C, then D. And then in Matthew, it's first B, then C, then D, then A. And in Luke, it's something different again. And in John, you get stories you don't find anywhere else anyway. And so it's very difficult to work it out. But this site, I think, has done a great job of putting it into the best kind of order that you can get. We're not going to go into detail this morning because we do want to get away and have a picnic and stuff like that. So um, what I want to do is just give you a kind of brief kind of skeleton as to how it all went in the three years when Jesus was traveling right down and ministering. Let's have a look at the next slide. And, and, and this is a map of, of, of Israel in Jesus' day here. And uh, most of what he did was done either in the yellow bit at the top, Galilee, where he lived, where he was brought up, or in Judea, down at the bottom, that's the, the sandy-coloured bit, because that's where Jerusalem was, and that's where, where he knew he was going to have to die one of these days. But right in the middle of the country, you've got some other areas. You've got that blue bit called Samaria. And the people who lived there weren't proper Jews. And sometimes Jews, when they had to go from the south to the north, would go all the way around across the Jordan, and through that uh, purple bit there and the, the green bit to get to Galilee. Because the Samaritans were mongrels. They weren't proper Jews. They had intermarried with Gentile settlers and people like that. And so they didn't really belong. Perea and Decapolis weren't much better, but uh, it was at least okay to go to there. But those two areas were pretty Gentile as well. And what we're going to look at this morning is just why Jesus went to those places... And why he also went way off the map, right at the top there. You see up the top, that last place there is called Sidon. And uh, underneath it, there's a city called Tyre. And Jesus met the woman that we've read about this morning in the region of Tyre and Sidon. After taking that massive trip right up to a place where he doesn't seem to have done very much, and then come back down again. Why did all that happen? Well, let's just have a look at how Jesus' career works here. This is the shape of it. After Jesus is baptized, uh, you remember, we've talked about the fact there were three years of Jesus' work. The first of those we called the year of obscurity. And uh, in that year, we don't know an awful lot about what he was doing, but we do know some of the places he was doing it. First of all, we know he was in the Judean countryside where he'd been baptized by John. And he worked down there alongside John, it would appear, and some of Jesus' own disciples did some baptizing, although he didn't do it himself. Then he went back to Galilee. And I've said there, Galilee via Samaria, because he went through Samaria to go there. He didn't go round it. And that was where he talked to the woman at the well. She went away saying, isn't this the Christ? Isn't this the guy we've been looking for? 
But most of the work he did was in Galilee. So it was then the year of public favor. He was in Galilee. And then he took that trip north to Tyre and Sidon that we've read about. And then he went to the Decapolis. That's a purple area on the map there. The ten towns that were really Greek towns. And they, they'd been given authority by the Romans to run their own affairs and uh, not be subject to the Jewish government or anything like that. And uh, also he went back to uh, Jerusalem to a festival and all of that happened in the year of public favour. But then things got worse in the last year of Jesus' life. We've got the year of opposition because he starts off in Galilee once again. He goes up to Caesarea Philippi, which again, it's a town you might just be able to see right at the top of the map. And there, something happened that we'd have to spend a whole week talking about. But it was the hinge of Jesus' ministry. Okay, it was towards the end of it, but it just changed everything. And if you look at the Gospel of Mark, for example, you'll find that the first eight chapters of that 16-chapter book are all about everything that led up to Caesarea Philippi. And then the last eight chapters are about that tiny little bit after Caesarea Philippi when Jesus traveled down towards Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9 says that at this point, Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He didn't want to. He was fearing what would happen. He realized it was all going to end badly as far as his physical life was concerned. But he was determined to do it. And so Mark spends a whole second half of his gospel on that journey down to Jerusalem. It goes up to chapter 8 and it goes down towards chapter 16. It's the pinnacle of what Jesus came to do. Anyway, we'll deal with that some other week. But after Caesarea Philippi, he goes through Samaria again. He's been there for quite a while. The woman at the well was a long time ago. And he goes down to Perea. And there he does a bit of work before he goes off to Jerusalem and Judea and spends the last of his time there. Now that's just the rough shape of it. But what I want to look at this morning, very simply, uh, and the cross and resurrection comes in at the end. But what I want to look at this morning is the fact that in lots of these, these, these places, he's dealing with non-Jews, or people who are not really proper Jews. And he's even going outside the bounds of the country at one point to go up north to Tyre and Sidon. How did Jesus deal with situations like that? If it's true that, as he says in the passage you read, I'm sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, why is he dealing with the foreigners and what exactly happens with them? And more importantly, next question. Uh, next uh, slide, please. Uh, it's not moving on, is it? Goodness me. Oh, it's changing the colours. Oh, right, okay, sorry, yes. It's, those are the regions we're talking about, the foreign regions that he went to, uh, up at the north, then out to the west, west or, or the south of Galilee, and then over to the east. So let's look at those three areas that Jesus worked in and ask this question, what is it that can stop people from listening to Jesus? Because I think in each of those situations, you find Jesus is going over a barrier that keeps people away from himself and helping them to uh, find reality in a way that they never did before. And it doesn't matter whether they were Jewish or not. Jesus, each of those stories has something to show us about what can stop people listening to Jesus. Now, it's important, obviously, if you want to take the gospel to people and uh, you, you want to understand what barriers are in the way. It's important if you're not a Christian yet and you want to understand what barriers need to be crossed before you can really come to know Jesus. But it's also important for us as Christians. Because if you're a Christian, it's possible that you stop listening at some point to what Jesus is actually saying to you. And I think in each of those three situations, Jesus goes north, Jesus going south, Jesus going east, you learn a new principle about what can stop people coming to Jesus. Okay, let's look at the first of those. When Jesus went north, 
The story we've read already. He's talking to a, a woman, a Syrophoenician woman. That's the journey he took up there. What was he trying to do? Well, I think what he was doing here was meeting the unentitled. He was talking to people who had no place in the nation of Israel. They weren't the lost sheep that he'd come for. And I think what Jesus is doing through this story is showing his disciples and showing the Pharisees he'd been criticizing them, if any of them are around, that he's not just there to serve the Jews. He's there with a worldwide mission. And so you can get the wrong message out of this story. Because you could think that what it's saying is, uh, this woman has, has got, a, uh, got a serious problem, and she comes to Jesus with tears and eyes, Jesus, please help me here. And Jesus, nope, 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 I'm sorry, Jews only, don't you read the sign on outside, go away. No, no, please help me. Oh, and the disciples said, look, Jesus, we know you're doing the right thing. You're pushing her away, but look, just get, just get rid of her, will you? Completely and totally. She's still hanging around. We can't have this. Speak a bit more sharp to her. And uh, Jesus says, well, you know, uh, he says to the woman, you shouldn't take what is for the children and give it to the dogs. That's no way to run a household. And then she comes up with a, 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 a jokey remark. Yeah, but when the food falls off the table, then the dogs get to eat it. And Jesus laughs and says, good answer. Well done. Okay, I'll do a miracle for you just this once. Now, that is not what the story is saying. I think what the story is saying is this. This woman comes for help, and there are at least three strikes against her. For a start, she's living in a pagan place. For another thing, she's Greek by birth. And for another thing, she's living in uh, Syrophoenicia, which is an, a, a, a place that's um, historically a place that stood against the Jews and which is prophesied against as we'll see in the Old Testament. And so Jesus, I think, gives a stock answer. Oh, I've come just as a prophet to the Jews. That's the way we work, are we prophets. We have nothing to do with you people up here. And she doesn't believe him. <laughs> That's why she keeps asking. And Jesus says, you can't take food for children and give it to dogs. And dogs was the word that the Jews used to use for people in that part of the world. Anybody, in fact, who was non-Jewish. And something about the way that Jesus said that gave her hope. And she said, dogs, yeah, okay, fair enough. That's where I am as far as the Jews are concerned. But when bits fall off the table, then the dogs get to eat it. And I believe that your grace overflows so much, you're not going to confine yourself to Jews, are you? You've got a bit left over for me. And Jesus says, yeah, woman, your faith is great. That's what he says in one of the other Gospels when the same story is told. Your faith is great, your daughter is well. And so she goes back, and their daughter is fine. What's happened? Jesus' disciples are looking at this and thinking, so Jesus is interested in Gentiles after all. And he doesn't believe their dogs. And the unentitled people, the people who are excluded from Israel because they're not quite Jewish enough, they count as well. Can we see the next slide? And this next slide is, is Tyre. This is the city of Tyre as it looks today. It had been one of the greatest cities of the ancient world up until uh, these days, but 300 years before Jesus. It had been attacked by Alexander the Great, and it never got its, its eminence again. Tyre had been one of the great trading points of the ancient world. You know the city of Cadiz in the south of Spain? That was established by the Tyrians because they went everywhere. Some historians believe they were trading in tin from Britain. So maybe they had connections with Cornwall as well. Certainly Cornish tin seems to have got as far as Cadiz, and then the Phoenicians took it and traded in it because they were great at luxury goods. 
They, were, they, they did, weren't bothered in, with most of the things, the ordinary things that people traded with. They were the real luxury experts. You know, they were Louis Vuitton, they were Burberry, they were the people whom you couldn't afford to buy a handkerchief from. And they really built a massive commercial empire. And it all came crashing down after uh, the, the, the Old Testament prophets had said, this is the end for Tyre. Ezekiel said, your heart became proud on account of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. And here he's talking about something which is still to happen when this prophecy is written. It did happen, and Tyre came crashing down. It never reached the same status again. Another prophet, Isaiah, says, Who planned this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are renowned in the earth? The Lord Almighty planned it to bring down her pride and all her splendor and to humble all who are renowned on the earth. And there must have been lots of people in Tyre and Sidon who remembered the greatness of the country as it had been before. But... Uh, they were living amongst the ruins of a civilization which had been big and wasn't any longer. Next slide, please. And uh, uh, one writer of those days, Pliny the Elder, wrote about Tyre just a few years after this event happened that we read about this morning. The entire renown of Tyre now consists in a shelf and the purple dye because they were rebuilding their commerce. But it was all based on one particular thing, if you can click on the next one, this little shellfish which produced a purple dye which was used for exclusive clothing. The trouble was there were factories all along the seafront producing this purple dye and it was great, great dye, but it stank. And so Tyre was a city that smelt, you could smell it miles off. I grew up not far from Kirkcaldy in Scotland, which was the centre of the linoleum industry. And I remember as a small child coming back in the car from a journey away, you could always tell when you were coming near Kirkcaldy because you could smell the linseed oil from five miles away. And once we were through Kirkcaldy and the smell died away again, I think, oh, there's a few miles and we'll be home. <laughs> but you could never go to Kirkcaldy with a pervasive smell around you. Tyre was like that too. And so it had fallen massively from its uh, previous greatness. And if we go into the next one, um, the woman, the Syrophoenician woman, was somebody who was prepared not to live in past glories, not to think about the past, but to come to Jesus and say, I've got nothing, you've got to help me. And she said, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yeah, okay, but even the dogs under the table take the crumbs. She was saying, I may be just a dog. I don't count for anything. I have no right to expect anything from you. I have entitlement, but I believe you're going to help me just because you're gracious. And if we move on to the next one, I think what all of this is saying to us is that the problem of Tyre was the problem of pride. And there were plenty of people who heard Jesus talking in those days who weren't that interested in what to say because they were living on past glories. We are Tyrians. We are not Jews. We don't need a Jewish prophet to come up here and, and do miracles for us and tell us how we have to be. And it would have been perfectly possible to push Jesus away and just live on what you've been in the past. And that, it seems to me, is one of the reasons that many people never come to Jesus. They're proud. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I always try to help other people. I've lived a good life. Why do I need to be forgiven by Jesus? What's the cross all about anyway? Well, if you want to know more about that, come back tonight. But uh, that's, uh, that's, that's my advert for today. But, um, it's possible to push Jesus away just because you have been something. And the only way that anybody can come to know Jesus' power in their own life is to say, I can't do it myself. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. 
Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Only Jesus has the power to lift you out of your present situation and do something that changes your life. And that's what the woman was prepared to say. Look, Jesus, I have nothing. I have no claim. I have no rights. But I want you to help me. Is that possible for Christians too? Can we become so proud of what Jesus has done through us that we stop listening to him? I think we can. And we've seen a few Christian heroes over the last few years, haven't we? Who suddenly come crashing down to earth because they've become self-sufficient. They've become proud of their own achievements. They felt that somehow God owed them something because of their faithful service and the wonderful things they've done in his name. And the names of fallen heroes, well, I don't need to list them for you. Carl Lentz, Bill Gates, Rabbi Zacharias, people who were seen as tremendous Christian leaders, Bill Gates, all sorts of people who have been humbled by God because he won't allow people to go on and be proud and take the credit for themselves and start doing what they want to do rather than what they're called to do in his name. It's all too possible for us to rely on our CV, on the things we've done, and settle back a little bit and think, well, God owes me something now for all this work I've put in for him. The problem of pride. Let's move on to the, to, to the next one. Oh, yeah, but just something that Jesus said. And this might have something to do with why he actually went to Tyre and Sidon, of all the Gentile places he could go to. Do you remember, when Jesus started out his ministry, he went to the synagogue in Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And the people had heard all the stories about him. And they knew he was coming. And they thought, oh, great, we'll get some miracles this morning, because Jesus is a Nazareth boy, and he owes us one. He's been doing all this stuff in the towns around Galilee. Now we'll see something. and tell some of his great stories. And instead... Jesus says to them, listen, don't think you, I owe you anything because of who you are. God doesn't work that way. And he came with the story about somebody who lived in the region of Tyre and Sidon a few centuries before. And he said this, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And the only person it seemed that God was interested in at that point was a widow woman who knew she had nothing and God sustained her miraculously through the drought and the famine that consumed the rest of the land and through his prophet showed God's interested in individuals who know they've got nothing, who aren't proud but are just prepared to take a chance on God. So that's, that's uh, uh, perhaps why Jesus went up there. Next, next uh, slide, Jesus goes east. Well, what happened here? This, I think, is Jesus uh, going to people who are indecisive. Because that's the kind of area he's in now. He went, first of all, to the Decapolis, and that's the, what, those black towns uh, that you see there. Philadelphia, Gerasa, Pella, Scythopolis, Gadara, all of those places. And this is a region which was always associated with not making up your mind and not being decisive. For one thing, it was... Um, uh, a place that was, was, was uh, uh, colonised by pagan incomers. When the Jews lost their own country, Greeks came and settled in these cities, and they took on a Greek culture. And they were very proud of the, the fact that they had pagan temples and all sorts of modern conveniences all over the place. That's why they petitioned the Romans to be able to govern themselves, because we're not proper Jews. On the other hand, there were Jews in those cities too, and it was in the land of Israel. And so it was a funny kind of clash of cultures between the two. Also, what's more, they were wealthy and powerful places. 
There were places where you could, could ignore the conflict that was going on between Judaism and paganism and all those things and just live for the good life. Live, live the, the, the life you wanted to and just go for whatever made life comfortable for yourself. Also, it was a place uh, uh, where pleasure became the heart of life. That city, Skythopolis, on, on the left bank of the, the Jordan there, that's the only one of those cities that was actually on that side of the Jordan. Well, that was the Roman city of Bethshan. And it was a place where Roman troops came when they had time off to go and do stuff that's better not talked about. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and lots of things happen in Bethshan that you wouldn't want to talk about. And when you go there nowadays, the Roman ruins are absolutely incredible. It's a fantastic place. It was wealthy, it was pleasurable. You could go there and just forget everything and just relax enjoy your life and uh, I think that tells us about something else that was going on but one, one more one, uh, also in these cities you had fiercely traditional Jews I mean one of the cities there is Gadara do you remember what happened in Gadara if we can just highlight it here thank you that is where Jesus cast demons out of a man and they went into pigs instead and those pigs went careering down the hillside then the people in Gadara came to Jesus oh we don't like this please go away go away go away and some of that had to do with the fact that Jews don't like pigs very much. And uh, there were people who were fiercely traditional, didn't want the boat to be rocked, just wanted to carry on what they were doing. And so you've got this tug, this contrast going on in the cities of the Decapolis. But you remember, there was another region below the Decapolis as well, and that was Perea. And uh, Perea was another place that was associated with indecision. For one thing, the first thing is, uh, it was the land of Reuben. Do you remember Reuben was the eldest of Jacob's sons? And he was supposed to be the leader. But do you remember when the youngest son, Joseph, was uh, hated by his brothers and they wanted to get rid of him? Reuben refused to take the lead. He thought he'd uh, free Jacob, uh, Joseph from the pit that they'd thrown him into secretly, quietly, because he was scared of his brothers. He wasn't really a leader. And when he came back, he found they'd sold him into, into the hands of uh, the Egyptians anyway. And so he thought, oh, fair enough then. And he went along with the lie they told to his father, Jacob, that, that Joseph had been torn apart by wild beasts. And that lie went on in Reuben's life for years and years. If he'd really been a leader, if he'd really been the eldest brother, he'd stood up and said, this is wrong. He'd have gone to Jacob and said, you know what we've done? We've done something terrible here. He never did. He just went along with it. And so when Jacob dies, he gives a blessing to each of his sons. And it's always a pretty good blessing. With Reuben, it is, Reuben, you're my eldest the first fruit of, of, of my body, unstable as water, you will not excel. And that was the whole story of the rave of Reuben down through history. People who made compromises, people who weren't totally committed. The reason that their land was on the right-hand side of the Jordan was because they didn't really want to go into the country with the other people. They wanted to stay on their side. Reuben was a tribe that uh, wouldn't help Deborah. Do you remember Deborah, the female judge, who called the tribes to go and, and, and fight against their oppressors? And then, then she, 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 she sings that song when, when God's given her the victory about how all these people have come and helped her. And one of the verses of the song says, Amongst the tents of Reuben, there was great searching of heart. And she says, Reuben, why did you stay by the campfires? and listen only to the uh, whistling of the flocks. You're so bothered with just your own life and not making anything go wrong, not, not, not rocking the boat in any way. You wouldn't come out and fight. 
in, and she says it again, in the, in the settlements of, of Reuben, there was great search of heart. So it wasn't that Reuben was against the Israelites. He was just torn in two ways. Also, another thing about this area, it was ruled later on in the days of Nehemiah by a guy called Tobiah. And he again was a fence-sitter because he was somebody who was an Ammonite, not a member of the people of Israel at all, but he had a Jewish name. And he managed to marry into a priestly family. And she was kind of half Jewish and half pagan. And he was a pain in the neck as far as, as, as Nehemiah was concerned. And you see the same thing again and again. Wherever this region comes into history, it's, it's, it's a place of compromise. And in Jesus' own day, it was ruled by a fellow called Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, who tried to kill off Jesus when he was a baby. But Herod Antipas was his son. And in Herod's will, Antipas had been left this country. And uh, his fortress was here. And he was somebody who was a real compromiser. He was somebody who was scared of uh, the Jewish God. Because when he killed uh, John the Baptist, and then Jesus starts preaching, Oh, this Jesus, he must be John the Baptist, back back from the dead. Panic, panic, don't panic. And, and, And he did panic, because that was what he was all about. On the other hand, he was somebody who was prepared to, in the pursuit of his own personal pleasure, do the dirty on almost anybody who was his wife. She was the former wife of his own brother, Herod Philip. And when he'd gone on a, a visit to Herod Philip, he'd found this young girl who was almost the same age as he was, who was married to his brother, who was 30 years older than she was, and the inevitable happened. They got together. They went away together. And he uh, married this girl before she had even divorced his brother. Didn't make for good relations in the Herod family. It was a bit like Coronation Street, really. But, uh, you know, that was the kind of guy he was. And so we're talking about indecision here. Now, what does Jesus do when he comes to the indecisive? Well, I think he's confronting a different problem. The problem of priorities. He's talking to people now who are not as Jewish as the people back in Galilee. Not as Jewish as the people in Judea and Jerusalem. But people who are trying to live in two worlds. And this is another way in which people can avoid Jesus. Another barrier that can stop you listening to what God has to say. This business of living in two different worlds, not being too sure where your priorities are. And some of us want to serve God, but maybe not serve him very much. And the thing is, Jesus is saying, unless you're totally committed to doing what God wants you to do, then you're not really serving him at all. The danger of living in conflicting cultures And we have a problem nowadays, don't we, in balancing what we're being told more and more pressingly by the world outside. The ideas that come across in the media, the things that people just assume are normal, which run right against some of the things that the Bible tells us are normal. And we have to live in a world of two cultures and make sure we're listening to what God has to say in the middle of the maelstrom of conflicting ideas going on in the world. You get it wrong, and God ceases to talk to you any longer. You're not hearing what he's got to say. But there's a third thing, and the final thing, and let's just talk to this finish. Jesus went south in the end. He went to Samaria. Now, he'd started off going through Samaria right at the start of his ministry, as we said. So the first thing that happens with Jesus and Samaritans is that he goes to uh, Sychar and meets the woman at the well. Can we just put that picture of her up there? That's great. And the woman at the well in John chapter 4 is somebody who starts off very, very suspicious. Why? Because Jesus is now the antagonistic. The people who are always treated like dirt by the Jews. 
And people will live smack bang in the middle of a Jewish country where they are not wanted and not respected and not even treated as proper Jews. And so she's very wary when she gets to the well and she sees this Jewish rabbi sitting there and thinks, oh dear, this is terrible news. And then when he speaks to her, when they start to have a conversation with one another, she starts to realise that this guy is different. He knows things about her that he shouldn't possibly know. And he's talking about living water in the way that Steve was reminding us earlier on. And this just seems completely different. And then she sees his, his disciples coming back and she thinks, right now I'm really in trouble because this, this weird prophet might want to talk to women, but oh dear, now I'm in trouble. They're going to they're gonna push me out. And no surprise, when they come, they don't say a word. And it was at this point, says John in chapter 4, that she put down her water pot and rushed off into town saying, this has got to be the Messiah. This is such a different deal. I've never seen anybody who cares for people like this before. And despite her past record, despite the fact that she lived in an area that was prejudiced against the Jews and an area where the Jews were prejudiced against the people who lived there, she saw something different. And the people of the town said, yeah, we can believe this, not because of what you said, because we've seen with our own eyes what this guy is like. He's somebody who loves people. He's somebody who embraces everybody. He's somebody who has something to give to everybody, whatever their situation of need at the moment. There's a second thing that happened when Jesus was passing through Samaria again, going down to Jerusalem towards the end of his ministry. And he goes into a village in Luke chapter 9 where he's looking for uh, somewhere to sleep for the night. And they say, no, you're on your way to Jerusalem. We worship God on Mount Gerizim, which was their own mountain where they built up a rival temple. If you're going to Jerusalem, we don't want to know because you're identified with the people that we hate and who hate us. And so they're cast out of the village. And James and John, who are always very excitable, say, Lord, give us permission to, cut, to okay, call down uh, fire from heaven and burn this whole place up. Let's fry them up. Kentucky Fried Samaritan. Sounds a great idea. And uh, Jesus rebukes them. He says, no, we're not doing that. These people are not accepting me. It's only because of their prejudice. And once they get beyond their prejudice, things can happen here too. And it's all too easy for the Jewish disciples to be prejudiced in turn and write off the Samaritans just as the Samaritans are writing off Jesus. And sometimes, you know, our prejudices only disappear when we reach the bottom of the barrel. And that's what happens in story number three in Samaria. Because Jesus is passing across the boundary between Galilee and Samaria when he meets ten people who've been thrown out of the town in which they used to live. And some of them are Jewish, one of them is a Samaritan. But they're all lepers. And so they have to live in rags outside of the city because people fear their skin disease and won't have them around. And they all cry out to Jesus and say, look, we've heard you can help us. Can you help us here? And Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priest. And they know what that means. You only do that when you're well enough again to rejoin society. So they all go rushing off. And only one comes back to say thank you. <laughs> and the one who comes back, yeah, yeah, you've guessed, he was the Samaritan. And so Jesus says, look, ten people were healed, weren't they? Why has only one come back? And he's a Samaritan. And the disciples look at one another and once again get the message. This is for everybody. And the barrier of prejudice can keep us away from hearing more from God. Things that he wants to teach us. Things that he wants to take us beyond. 
new areas where he wants to enlighten their understanding and help us sympathize with people in a new way. And so the barrier here is the barrier of prejudice. And uh, Jesus, in his teaching, often shows that uh, this barrier should not exist. One of the greatest stories he told was the story of the Good Samaritan. And, you know, as you, you hear him telling the story in the gospel, you can see in your mind's eye his audience freezing. The guy who'd asked him the question about, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, well, there's this uh, Samaritan who came along after the priest and the Levite wouldn't help. And, ah, a good Samaritan, that's a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing. And what Jesus is doing is challenging the stereotypes. Next one, Richard. And it's the problem of prejudice. Pride can keep us away from hearing Jesus' voice. Priorities can be twisted, and that can keep us from hearing Jesus' voice. And third, our prejudices. And this is the danger of living with unexamined ideas. I know what I believe. I know what I think. I'm not moving any further. I've got my package all sorted out. God is a God of new things. He wants to work us on beyond the, 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 the ditches we build around ourselves, the walls we build around our minds, and help us to explore things that we've not seen yet that are there in his word, that are there to help us. And he wants to take us on. And if we remain in our prejudices, then, uh, uh, we're never going to hear his voice. You know, those three areas were not areas where Jesus wasted his work. Next one, please. If you look at what happened after Jesus dies, the first thing you find is that one of the earliest and strongest Christian communities is in Tyre and Sidon. And when the Apostle Paul is going to Jerusalem towards the end of his life, They all come out of the city and pray with him on the seashore outside Tyre because there are now so many Christians in that area. They're worried about Paul going down to Jerusalem because there are more Christians in Tyre than there are in Jerusalem. That is amazing. How about the second one? Uh, How about Samaria? Uh, Sorry, um, the Decapolis. Well, one of those ten cities of the Decapolis was Pella. And when the Christians, later on, were persecuted in Jerusalem, lots of them seemed to have gone to Pella. And it became a centre of Christian worship and Christian scholarship and Christian evangelism like nothing else. And once again, it outdid Jerusalem. There were very few Christians left in Jerusalem because they went to the persecution. And they ended up in the Decapolis, serving God from there. And it became one of the crossroads of the early Christian world, where lots of initiatives came from. That just leaves Samaria. In Samaria, well, what you find after Jesus' death, when the church is growing in Jerusalem, is that the first place where there is a major evangelistic campaign and hundreds of people, it would appear, turn to Christ, is when Philip goes to a city in Samaria. We don't even know which one. And the whole country becomes gripped by the gospel. And so what Jesus does is goes to unlikely places, to unentitled people, to people who are likely to be behind the bars of pride and prejudice and wrong priorities. And he touches their lives in just the same way that he wants to touch all of ours today, again and again, until we understand more and more about him. Let's just pray before we hand back to Steve. Heavenly Father, as we see Jesus at work, it's important for us to remember that he's for everybody. He sees those who are suffering. He sees those who are broken. He sees those who've got nothing to contribute of their own and he lifts them up. And we need to come to you again and again, our Father, in the name of Jesus, admitting that we have nothing, but he is everything. We all have different needs and he can help us with all of them. 
you can bring into our lives a courage and a stamina and a power and a, a balm and a consolation we'll never find anywhere else. Thank you that Jesus took the time to go to the unlikely people as well as just staying with the people that he knew best. May his grace and his love and his mercy reach all of our lives this morning and this coming week. For your name's sake. Amen.